have some guests with us um, this, this morning. Um, Justin, Tamara, and Aliana Langley are with us. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to meet all of them, uh, that's um, your loss at this point. Uh, I hope you get a chance to meet them uh, before they leave. They are going to have to get out of here quick because they've got a flight out of Rochester just after three. Uh, so keep that in mind. But uh, So they are here with us. They've been here with us all weekend. A lot of you have had the opportunity to get to know them uh, at the game night or men's prayer uh, and or this morning at ABF when we had a, a fantastic look at at the book of Mark, uh, and that's going to continue this morning. I'm not going to say too much more. Many of you know that Justin is from Texas. I'm hoping to get a few y'alls this morning, um, and uh, I'm just going to have him come right on up, and he'll go ahead and start a, you know, start this time with prayer, and then he'll just open the word for us. So uh, listen to him better than you listen to me. All right, great. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your people. So grateful that you have gathered together your body in this place this morning. We're so glad to be a part of the work that you're doing in this world. We, uh, we want to celebrate the work that you've done in the past for us. We want to rejoice in the life that you've given to us, the eternal life that you've provided through the death of your Son, So we ask this morning that you would open our hearts as we open your word. We want to listen to you. We want to hear you speak this morning. And so we ask you to speak. We ask you to speak into the depths of our hearts, the places that we might keep hidden from others, the places that only you know about. Would you minister your word to each of us individually where we need it? Thank you for the power of your word. We want to rest in you this morning, and we want to celebrate and Build up our faith. So we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wish that I could just say the words, be clean, and what was dirty would become clean. What was messy would become neat. What was smelly would become fresh. As my wife can attest, I don't like to get dirty. But, in God's humorous providence, over the past three years, I've had to play the role of pastor dad to my precious three-year-old baby girl. God has so shaped our circumstances that I've needed to be a part-time, stay-at-home dad. Do you know what that means? I have changed more diapers than my wife. Probably. She's catching up. I have seen things. I have smelled things. (laughs) But since I love my daughter, I have moved in, gotten close, gotten my hands involved, and done what was needed. Cleaning my daughter up takes much more than a word. My hands had to get involved. Jesus, however, actually has that power. He can say the words, be clean, And what was unclean becomes clean in an instant. And what astounds me about Jesus, and what we'll see from the passage we're going to look at this morning, is even though though he can do that, even though he can just say the words and make someone clean, he chooses to reach out his hand and touch what is unclean. I want you to marvel at that this morning, and I want you to see 
how He's done that in your life and how He can do that in your life, no matter what mess is in your life, no matter how messy and broken your life is or the, bro- or the brokenness that you see around you, Jesus can move into that and bring cleansing and healing and restoration to that. I'd invite you to open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 1. I shared in the ABF time this morning that Mark's Gospel is my favorite of the four, and I'm sharing with you this morning my very favorite passage, probably in all of Scripture. Uh, I love this story. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, tells us the story of Jesus' interaction with and cleansing of a leper. And I love this story. It moves me. And I want it to move you as well. So I want to highlight some of the things that Mark tells us here. And I want you to see Jesus really clearly this morning. That's my goal. That's my one objective this morning. So let's look at verses 40 to 45. Let me read through them. And then we will unpack them and look at some of the details this morning. Mark 1, 40 to 45. And the leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, as we look at this story, it's probably important for us to remember some things about leprosy. Uh, Leprosy is still a word that's used in today's medical world, but it's limited to a single condition. It's also known as Hansen's disease. It's a terrible disease that has something to do with the nerve endings and their deadening, so that a person no longer feels the sensation of pain, for example. And so injuries... Uh, become catastrophic for a person because they don't feel it and they don't deal with it. And there's a decay of the body that goes along with that. But in the ancient world, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term for a lot of different skin diseases. Some of them life-threatening, some of them contagious, some of them not. But all of them were kind of held under this heading of leprosy. Uh, By one count, at least, there were 72 distinct skin conditions that fell under this category of leprosy. Leprosy was a devastating diagnosis, but in the biblical world at least, in the Old Testament, we get some legislation in the Law of Moses about how to handle the situation of leprosy. And when a person comes down with a boil or a sore or some kind of skin condition, you don't send them to a medical expert. You don't send them to a doctor to go for treatment. Instead, you send them to the priest. And what that tells us in and of itself is that this was a condition, these were conditions that were considered outside the purview of medical expertise. Doctors couldn't do anything to fix these problems. And so instead, you send a person with this condition to 
the religious expert, the priests, the representatives of God on the earth. That's because only God could do anything about this situation. Only God could do anything about this skin condition. And so you send the person to the priest. Leviticus chapter 13, if you want to go home and have some light reading, not something I suggest you do over lunch. Um, It can be a bit gory is the right word for it. Uh, But Leviticus 13 reads more like a dermatology handbook than something we would expect to find in the scriptures. But it's a detailed manual for how a priest is supposed to diagnose these skin conditions. Some skin conditions aren't leprosy, and some are. And the priest is supposed to know which is which. And there are procedures that are given for what do you do when you get one of these? What has to happen to you? And the situation is awful, devastating for a person who has this skin condition. Leprosy was connected very much with death. Because sores on the body look like the decay of skin and the decay of the body, which is often associated with death. And there's even a place in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, where Moses' siblings, Aaron and Miriam, have a little moment of mistrust. And they speak out against Moses in front of everybody. And God is displeased with that. And he responds by striking Miriam with a case of leprosy. And when Aaron looks at her and sees that she's come down with leprosy, he immediately says that she is like one who is dead, like a stillborn baby even, one who comes out of the womb with the flesh half eaten, is the way Moses, Aaron described it. That's not pretty in any way. And in the first century, in Jesus' time, that stigma was very much associated with leprosy. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived shortly after Jesus and gave us our most complete history of the Jewish people up to that point, describes leprosy like this. He says, And for the lepers, Moses suffered them not to come into the city at all, nor to live with any others, as if they were, in effect, dead persons. They were very much treated as dead men walking. And if you've got to look at your sermon notes, you might see the sermon title this morning is Cleansing the Walking Dead. And that is an allusion to the TV show that's become so popular called The Walking Dead, which I have never seen. But it's hard to miss the cultural impact that it's had. Its advertisements are everywhere. And I have watched in my own generation, and probably to my generation's shame to some degree, a fascination with death that has risen up in the form of an emphasis on zombies and the walking dead. But I very much see that as a providential reality. Uh, Speaking of people and thinking of this concept of the walking dead actually provides us with a wonderful opportunity for evangelism and for speaking the gospel. Because the walking dead, the idea of zombies, is not something the culture made up. It's actually a biblical idea. And it first was opened up in this realm of leprosy, but it gets built on later, and we'll talk more about that uh, at the end of our time this morning. But the idea of the walking dead, this, is, this connection with death that's going on here is very important. For the leper, their situation was dire and desperate indeed. I'll read you one verse from Leviticus 13 that gives you an indication of how they were supposed to behave. And then we'll dive into what actually happens here. Leviticus 13.45 says, The leprous person 
who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. Now, we're, in this story, we don't get a description of how the leper looks. We can assume that he is, in fact, wearing torn clothes. We can assume that his hair is hanging loose, no head covering for him, no kind of headband or yarmulke or anything like that for him. He must wear his hair down and loose and dirty. And that is so that other people can look at him and tell that he has a condition like this, so that they can see him and avoid him. And even beyond that, he's instructed to put his hands over his lips and call out unclean. Now, I'm being amplified by a microphone here, but you can tell the difference when I put my hands over my lips. It gets louder, and that's the idea. The leper had to announce himself publicly when other people were coming. So if if I had a case of leprosy and a, a person was walking in through those doors up this aisle, I had to announce, unclean, unclean, so that the person from far away could notice me, identify me as a leper, and make a beeline the other way so that they don't risk coming into contact with me. Because if they do, according to the Mosaic Law, if they come into contact with me or another person, they become unclean. Leprosy is, shall we say, spiritually contagious. The skin disease itself might not be contagious. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But if anybody touched a leper who didn't have it, they would be ceremonially unclean and they had to separate themselves from society and go through several rituals before they were able to come back into society. That's the situation of this man that Jesus meets here. He is a leper. We don't know for how long, but given the way that he approaches Jesus, I think we can assume that it's been a while that he has been in this situation for a long time because he is coming to, a, to Jesus breaking the Mosaic law. He is not following this command. He does not announce himself as unclean, unclean. He simply walks right up to Jesus and falls down at his feet. He comes into close proximity to this man, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with the specifics of the Mosaic Law at this point. He's desperate for healing. He's desperate for cleansing. And he apparently has heard that this man Jesus heals people, has the power to heal. And what I want you to notice in particular here in verse 40 is what this man believes. He makes a statement of faith. We see exactly what this man believes and how, why it motivates him to do what he does here. So he says in verse 40, If you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. You can. You have the ability. You have the power to make me clean. Now we should assume, I think, that this is a Jewish man, a Jewish leper, and everything that he would know about his condition, everything he would understand about leprosy, what he would have read in his Old Testament. He would have read in his Bible. And there are two primary big conclusions that he would have drawn from reading his Old Testament. Number one, leprosy is a condition that only God can do anything about. Only God can cleanse a leper. That is clear everywhere leprosy is talked about in the Old Testament. Only God can cleanse leprosy. 
And secondly, the other big observation that he would have drawn, the big conclusion he would have drawn, is a corollary. No human being can do anything about it, particularly the priests. The priests deal with the leper, but they only have the authority to declare a person as leprous or not leprous. They only have the, the ability to verify and diagnose. They have no power to do anything beyond that. And so this leper believes something about Jesus that is remarkable. He believes that Jesus has the very power of God working in him. He believes that Jesus has the power to make him clean. Not simply declare him clean, but to actually bring it about. It's marvelous and remarkable what he believes about Jesus. And we might wonder, how did he get there? Just from hearing the reports about Jesus healing people, he has made a step forward in his faith to say that Jesus can do something that only God can do. Jesus is unique among human beings. He can do something no other human being can do. And so he approaches Jesus. Now, he says, if you will, and I don't, I don't think I want you to read that and think, well, there's some doubt in his mind about whether this is going to work out. I think that he's simply entrusting himself to the will of Jesus and ultimately the will of God. He's simply entrusting himself to the will of Jesus. But he's not doubtful. He's coming to Jesus. He's got great hope that Jesus can do something about this. And so he comes to him even at the risk of breaking the Mosaic law. So he falls down before Jesus and he begs him, If you will, you can make me clean. So let's look at Jesus' response here. Jesus begins, the first phrase of verse 41 tells us Jesus' response. He was moved with pity. That's the English Standard Version, what I'm reading from. Many of your Bibles will say something like moved with compassion. But if you happen to be reading the 2011 edition of the NIV, you will read something very different. You will read Jesus was indignant, filled with anger. I don't want to get bogged down into what's going on with the differences there. What I want you to see in either case, whether it was anger or whether it was compassion or some blending of the two, Jesus responds with a deep emotion here. And I think that's very important to see. Jesus isn't some guy who stoically walks around, walks around doing the will of God, just doing what is right just because it's right. Jesus is deeply emotional. And when he responds to people's suffering in particular, he responds with deep emotion. We shouldn't think of Jesus as simply you know, disconnected from people. He wants to move in, and he wants to move in with feeling. He is very personal and engaging when he connects with a human being, and particularly with the suffering of a human being. And I think there's something that we can learn from that. You know, I think sometimes we think, we fall into the trap of thinking that the Christian response when my spouse is suffering or someone is suffering is that we just need to grin and bear it. That's the Christian response. We need to endure and be happy about it. It's okay to get angry in the face of suffering. Suffering is a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's, this, it's a result of the rebellion of humanity. 
It's a, an outworking of the brokenness of this world. Jesus gets upset about it too. And so I think it's good and healthy for us to engage with sufferers with our emotions. Not simply move in and try to fix the problem. Jesus does that too. But we ought to be able to move in the way that Jesus does with compassion and and maybe a little bit of strong passion and emotion here. The hurting and the pain and the suffering of our loved ones and even ourselves is not something to be happy about or glib about. We ought to be worked up about it. And we ought to be sure that we don't direct our anger to the wrong place. I don't think if Jesus was angry here, I don't think he was angry at the leper. I think he was angry at the suffering that he was experiencing. And so it's not good when we're angry at the sufferer. And it's also not particularly good when we get angry with God in those situations. Surely Jesus did neither of those things. But our emotion can be an important part of engaging with other people and doing the kind of ministry that Jesus does. So whatever Jesus was feeling in particular, as we go through the passage, we're actually going to see a little bit of evidence of both, compassion and some kind of strong hostility almost uh, through this. So both of those things are there in some way. But I want to look... Uh, particularly at the way that Jesus responds to him out of this emotion. So he feels this deep emotion and he reaches out his hand and he touches him. He doesn't clean him up and then touch him. He could have, right? The leper could have, at a distance, the leper could have done what he was supposed to have done and said, unclean, unclean, at a great distance. And Jesus could have stood there and said, be clean. And I believe he would have been cleansed. Or, when he approached him and kneeled down before him, Jesus didn't have to put out his hands. He could have put his hands behind his back, kind of leaned back away from him and said, be clean. And I think he would have been cleaned. But Jesus instead, out of compassion, reaches out his hand and touches this man. I think that's an important part, a really important part of this passage because this leper most likely has not experienced human physical contact in a long time. Read you one more verse from Leviticus 13, the very next verse from the one I read before. Leviticus 13, 46. He, the leper, shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Get the impact of that for this man. We don't know anything about him, but let's think what would have happened if he had a family. This man had a wife. He had children. He had to leave them. He had to leave them and go live somewhere else alone. He couldn't enter the camp or the community of the people of God. He couldn't go to the temple to offer sacrifices for his sins. He couldn't go to the synagogues to hear God's word taught. He couldn't go to either the synagogue or the temple to pray with other people, to worship with other people. He had to be separated from society. And it was this risk of making other people unclean that was a problem. And so for this man, as long as he's had the disease, has it been months? Has it been years? We don't know. But as long as he has had it, he has not experienced the touch of another human being. Now, surely you know the value of human touch. 
And you could do, there are research studies done about it, for, in particular for infants, how important it is that they receive human contact and what happens when it's deprived. But I'm sure you know from experience that it, it goes for adults too. Human physical contact is important for us. It helps us. It's valuable to us in our experience, especially when we're suffering. And Jesus doesn't skip that part. He starts with that part, in fact. And what I want you to see in that picture here is that Jesus is not waiting for you to clean up your life before he comes close to you. Jesus is not waiting for you to figure things out or to rearrange the disorder in your experience, in your home, in your family. Jesus is not waiting for you to get clean before he will come into your life and touch you. He delights to reach into the messiness and the brokenness of your life and change it. He doesn't leave this man unchanged. When he touches someone, he changes their life. And that's the way he is toward us. He's not waiting for us to figure things out or get things just right. He moves in, reaches into our lives, touches us in the brokenness and the messiness of our lives, And he actually makes things different. That's the Jesus that we serve and follow. So he touches this man, but that's not the end of the story either. He speaks and says the words, I will, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I love the way that's described. Immediately the leprosy ran away. At Jesus' word, leprosy just says adios and is gone in an instant. So he was made clean in an instant. His faith was vindicated. He believed that Jesus could do this, and Jesus did it, sure enough. Let's look at the rest of the story. Jesus' send-off of this man seems a little harsh. Verse 43 begins, And Jesus sternly charged him. There's no way around this word being just a gentle kind of nudging out the door. This is Jesus getting up in his face and saying, now listen here, buddy, you've got to go. And then he says he he sent him away. This is the same Greek word that gets used in the Gospels for how Jesus treats demons. He casts them out. He expels them, and that's what he does to this man. He sends him away really harshly. Curious why he does this. He gives him two specific instructions First, don't tell anybody. Now, I asked this in ABF with relationship to the resurrection of Jairus' daughter this morning, but if this were you, could you keep the secrets? We're going to see in this case that he doesn't do it. He disobeys Jesus. He disobeyed the Mosaic Law, so should we really be surprised that he disobeys Jesus here? But he does. He disobeys Jesus' word here, but Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And there's lots of discussion asking the question, well, why would Jesus tell him not to tell anybody? I mean, if, if I were in his shoes, I couldn't have obeyed it either. I would have made a beeline straight home and told my wife. First thing. Um, but he doesn't even do that. He just goes out in town and starts telling everybody what has happened to him. And I don't blame him particularly. But why does Jesus tell him to do this? I think the simplest way to understand what Jesus is up to is that he simply doesn't want to be known as what we might call a celebrity healer. 
He's already got a reputation that's going around. In chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel alone, we see summaries of him already going around and healing lots of people. But Jesus' mission is really to preach the Gospel. You can see a summary of it if you look back just a page or maybe just up on your page in your Bible. Mark 1.15 gives us a summary of Jesus' message during His ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Jesus' message. That's what He wants to be known for. Now, healing is a part of that. Healing is kind of a subset of what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is all about bringing wholeness and restoration, not just spiritually, but also bodily and physically. That's the ultimate longing of the coming of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying, it's here. I'm here. I'm the king. I'm bringing the kingdom into your lives. So your response is repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus doesn't want people going around saying, hey, come see Jesus. He'll heal all your diseases. Instead, he wants people to go out and say, come see Jesus. He is the king and he's bringing the kingdom here now. And so he wants that. That's his goal and his desire. But this man is not going to follow suit. But there's a second instruction that Jesus gives him that's really important here. And I've, I've described this send-off as a tough love send-off. Because I think Jesus is really looking out for the best interests of this man. So he tells him, go directly to the priest. Do not, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to the priest and let him certify you. Let him verify you. So Leviticus 13 is the manual for diagnosing leprosy. Leviticus 14, the next chapter, tells what to do in the special miraculous case that a leper is actually cleansed. What do they got to do then? Well, it turns out they have to actually do quite a lot. They have to offer several sacrifices. They have to do several ritual washings. And they have to remain outside the community for another seven days before they re-enter society and go back home. That's what Leviticus 14 says. And Mark doesn't tell us whether this guy ever does that. We don't know whether he ever ended up going to the priests. But the reason I think that this is important for him to actually do, uh, whether he did it or not, is I can imagine some skepticism from even his family when he comes home and says, I've been cleansed by this man, Jesus. I can imagine some potential skepticism. He could, show, he could show his wife his skin and say, look, it's all cleared up. It's, the leprosy's gone. Uh, but I could see her saying, did, did, you, did you go to the priest? Did, did you do what the law says you're supposed to do? How, how can it be good? How can you have received God's blessing of healing if you're sitting here disobeying the Mosaic law? And so I think he kind of needs, for his own benefit, the stamp of approval, if you will, the certification, the official certification from the priest in order for society to say, yeah, come on back. We'll welcome you and we'll celebrate the healing in full. Yeah, you can come back to our synagogue and you can worship here uh, and you can continue to do all the things that, are, that normal life involves. And so I think maybe that's why Jesus sends him and says, go directly to the priest. Don't talk to anybody along the way. Do that first so that there will be no trouble with you kind of reintegrating to society. 
But again, we don't know whether he did it or not. Instead, he goes out and he tells everybody about it. He freely talks freely about it and he spreads the news. It's an interesting word that Mark chooses here. It's the normal word for preaching, like preaching the kingdom or preaching the gospel. And so he's out there announcing, but he doesn't seem to be preaching the gospel. He seems to be preaching, I've been healed, I've been healed. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but Jesus told him, don't do that. (laughs) So it is kind of a bad thing. But we see the result here, and I actually think this is maybe the most important thing in the passage. It's always good when you're reading narrative in the Bible to ask the question, why does the narrator tell this story right here? What does he want me to see here and now, and why does he tell it with these details? So Mark actually uses lots of words here to explain the results of what happens because this, lep- this cleansed leper goes out and tells the news. And I actually think this is the key point in the passage. The result is so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, wilderness places. I think what Mark is wanting us to see here is a picture of what Jesus does for all of us. Because you see what, you could put the leper in place of Jesus there. This was the experience of the leper before he was cleansed. The leper could not enter, could not freely enter a town, but lived out in desolate places. The leper lived outside of society as an outcast. Jesus has taken his place. Jesus has taken the place of this leper. And I think Mark wants us to see a picture of the gospel here, a picture of what Jesus does for all sinners. He takes their place. He takes their plight, their situation. He substitutes himself for them so that he can save save them, rescue them, deliver them. Now, in the story, the healing comes first, and the the, the the replacement, the substitution, comes after But Mark, I think, is painting a shadowy picture, very much like the kinds of pictures we get in the Old Testament of what Jesus would later come to do. Mark, I think, is doing the same kind of thing. Jesus not only cleanses the leper, but he ends up taking his place, standing where he stood, experiencing what he experienced because of his suffering and his situation. This didn't hinder Jesus' ministry at all, it seems. This didn't prevent Jesus from connecting with people, because Mark goes on to tell us people came to him from everywhere. They heard he was out in the wilderness, and they came flocking to him out of the towns. I suppose Jesus might have, his, his plan, so to speak, might have been he'd like to go into a town on his own initiative, set up a platform, and proclaim the gospel, and have people come out to him that way. But instead, he goes out into desolate places because the town's already heard about him, and they're just flocking to find him, to kind of overwhelm him with uh, attention, trying to get him to heal their diseases, trying to get him to look after their sick relative. All of that is going to become more dominant than he might have liked uh, in the beginning. But nevertheless, we get a picture here of Jesus 
cleansing a person with an, uncur- an incurable condition, a picture of uh, almost resurrection, since this man would have been considered a dead man walking. But I'd like to close our time together this morning looking at the bigger picture, because this image of the cleansing of the walking dead is a picture of the gospel of salvation for sinners. And that picture is spelled out for us even in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I'd invite you to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2, and and see the bigger picture of what this cleansing of the leper is meant to be a picture of. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, probably really familiar verses here, but I want you to think about it in connection with this story a little bit. Uh, So in verses 1 through 3, Uh, Paul gives us a description of the situation, the plight of all humanity, every human being on the face of the planet. And look at the way he begins in verse 1. He's writing to Christians, and so he's saying, this is what you were like, this was your situation before you became a believer in Jesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead men walking in sin." That was our situation before we became believers in Jesus. That is the situation of every human being on the face of the planet outside of Christ. Dead people walking in sin. Paul goes on and elaborates on that and makes it clear that he's not just talking about these particular Christians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. I think Paul means by that phrase, children deserving of and destined for God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. All humanity comes in this world, into this world as a descendant of the rebels, Adam and Eve, inherits their rebelliousness, and comes into this world children deserving of and destined for God's wrath. Wrath. Paul doesn't stop there, and it's glorious that he doesn't. He gives this two-word phrase that is my favorite two-word phrase in the Bible, but God. It occurs so often in passages like this, where everything seems so dire and terrible and awful, and then, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
So God enters into the deadness of our human existence and brings us up out of the grave. The motive that Paul lists here is glorious to consider. This should move us and stir us to worship. Why did God do this? Why did God reach into the grave, the human grave, and bring us out alive? Why did he do it? Because of his rich mercy. He doesn't have just a little bit of mercy. He is wealthy in mercy, abundantly wealthy in mercy. And it was because of his great love. Not just love, great love. And Paul tells us in another place, Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's kind of the key to making this work. How could it be that God could make dead, unclean sinners alive? How could it be? Only because His Son died, experienced death in our place. He died paying the penalty for sin that He didn't deserve to pay, but that we deserve to pay. And he was motivated by the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace. There's not a calculator or a computer big enough in this world, or small enough as it goes, to calculate a dollar amount or a value on God's grace. It is immeasurable, immeasurable wealth of grace here. And he pours it out. And what I want you to see in this ver- these verses, 4 through 9, this is what happened to you. If you're a believer in Jesus today, the moment you began to trust in Jesus, all of this happened to you. God did it to you. He did three things in particular that are mentioned here. He made us alive together with Christ. So in the moment that a person begins to trust in Jesus, God unites that person to the risen Lord. He connects us to Jesus' resurrection so that we are now alive. This is not the picture of God throwing out a life preserver where we're out there kind of drowning and splashing around in the ocean and God throws us a life preserver that we need to then grab hold of. That's not the picture here. The picture is we are eight feet under the water, not breathing, not alive in any way. We're dead, dead, dead. And God dives into the ocean and grabs hold of us, brings us out of the water, and breathes life into us. That's the picture. That's what happened to you the moment you began to trust in Jesus. But that's not all. He also... He also raised us up with Him. He gave us not just any old life, not just our old life back, but He gave us us resurrection life so that the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now works in us to enable us to, as Paul puts it in Romans 6, walk in newness of life. We no longer have to walk in our sins we can now freely walk in newness, the newness that's provided by God's Spirit. But that's not even all. He also 
seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I want this to boggle your mind because it boggles my mind. I don't understand how this works. But in some way, at the moment you began to trust in Jesus, your body didn't change. But somehow, spiritually, you got a new location. You were seated in the heavenly places. And guess what? You're still seated there today. That seat is never going to be vacant. So even though your bodies are sitting here in these chairs at Alfred Allman Bible Church in western New York, somehow you are right now also at the same time seated in the heavenly places. Marvel at that. That's how strong your connection with Jesus Christ is if you're a believer in Him. You are where He is, seated at the right hand of God, right now. I don't know how you live that out. I don't know how that's relevant for your everyday existence, but it moves me to consider that reality. The depth of my connection to Jesus, I don't feel it all the time, but it's real and it's not going to change. It's an unbreakable bond. And this was all by God's grace. Paul can't even finish his sentence before he has to break out and remind us that this is all by grace. The rescue of our lives is all by grace. And then he repeats it and builds on that in verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. So that's our response to all of this wonder is to trust Him. To trust Him for what He's done for us. But even that response is not our own doing. Our salvation is not a result of our works. And you know, we often stop right there at verse 9. And who can blame us? We could sit there forever and enjoy it. But the passage really ends in verse 10. So he says, salvation is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then he goes on in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he started the passage by saying that we used to walk in our sin. We were dead men walking in our trespasses and sins. Well, now that God has made us alive, we don't just sit around and do nothing. God has made us alive so that we would walk differently. We would no longer walk in our sin, but now we walk in good works. Good works are not the cause of our salvation. Our salvation is not the result of works, but works are the result of our salvation. That's what Paul's saying here. You've got a new power to walk differently, to walk in a new realm. And that realm is the realm of good works, the realm of obedience to Jesus. That's the new life that we've been given. A life permeated by grace-empowered good works. We've been given new life. We are seated in the heavenly places, but we are still called to walk around down here on earth. And we're supposed to walk around not in sin, but in good works. And by God's grace, by the empowering of God's Spirit, we have the ability, the freedom even, to walk in this new way and to walk in this new realm. 
and we walk now alive forevermore. So this morning, if, if you don't know anything about what I'm talking about, but you feel something, you feel something of desperation, maybe, like this leper did, you feel some stirring of need for this man, Jesus, that we've been talking about, this man who offers himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for your sin, and reach out in faith. Trust him. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know what that entails, talk to somebody I guarantee you there are people in this room who would love to talk with you about what do you do when you feel that way? What do you do when God is stirring you? God is working on your dead heart. What comes next? You need help. And you have people around you that would be willing and eager to bring you that help. So I hope that you would do that today. We see a glorious picture here, a picture of Jesus and His compassion, a picture of Jesus and His power to bring healing, to bring cleansing, but ultimately to bring salvation, the rescue from all that ails us. And yes, we still wait for that. We still wait for the conclusion, the completion, the radical renovation of our bodies and this world. We sang about it beautifully this morning. Let that hope fill your heart. If you're a believer in Jesus today, rest in the love that's been poured out in your life. Rest even as you work really hard as a Christian seeking to obey Jesus. Rest in Him. He provides it freely by grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this picture of Jesus, this picture of salvation that's given to us in your word. Thank you for all that you've accomplished. Thank you for being willing to send your son into this world, into the the depths of our grave to wake us up and give us life. We thank you that the life that we've been given is, we're told, eternal We thank you that we can count on you to complete the good work that you've begun in us. We want to honor you with the life that you've given to us. And so we take our responsibility in all of this seriously, but we want to rest and depend on your grace every step of the way. Thank you for being with us, for making us with you, And that withness, that presence is never going to go away because of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.